Okay. Good. Hebrews chapter 11. We continue our series. And while you're turning there, I shall pray. Because that's more important than anything, isn't it? Lord, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your revelation. We thank you that even now we have something that is more than just a handbook for life. It's more than just a guidebook. It's actually your revelation. This is you revealing yourself and your plans and your purposes to us. Lord, I just thank you so much that we still have it in our possession, that we're allowed to publicly read from it and learn from it. And Lord, just again this morning as we do so, Lord, may we each one of us leave here with you having spoken to us clearly so we have something to act upon. So Lord, I just pray that this morning in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So yes, we are continuing through our Hebrews 11 series. We're coming towards the end. The end is in sight. How many months are we going for now? I don't know how many weeks we've done. Oh, well done. 14, was it? 13. Thank you very much. Well done. We're nearly there. We've got a few more weeks to go. It'll be about the end of November. But we're heading there. And now we've got to a point where the writers of the Hebrews, he spent a lot of time dwelling on certain characters, giving a number of verses to a few characters. And all of a sudden, I, I think the Hebrews writer was running out of paper. Because there comes a point, it's like, oh, I've got to squeeze a few more in. I've only got a side of A4 left. He's trying to, all of a sudden, things speed up, and then you, re, you race through chapter 12, and then chapter 13, I think it's like he's got attention deficit, it's all over the place. Don't forget this, and submit to your leaders, and don't forget this. And all of a sudden, he's running out of paper, I'm sure it is. So here, all of a sudden, things speed up. We've spent some time looking at people like Noah, Moses, Enoch, Joseph, and so on. And then we hit where we are today, is verse 32. What does he say? Verses 32 to 34. He goes, what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell. Here we go. I'm running out of paper to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Wow. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look at those names before we draw to a close on this series. So today, the first on the list, we're looking at Gideon. Gideon is one of my personal favourites from childhood Sunday school. He was one of my superheroes. I think it's amazing what he did with 300 men and the trumpets and the jars. And We'll come to that in a minute. But I used to love that story. But I always like, held him in high esteem as this great super Gideon. It's not until you get older and you reread the story you find out he was a hugely flawed man. Hugely. He was anything but. Except when he trusted God. Then things clicked into place. It's as simple as that. He was anything but a paragon of virtue, to be honest, even at the end of his life, unfortunately. But when he trusted God, things clicked into place. This is a guy who went from fearing man through testing God to trusting God. And those are the three processes of the guy's life we're going to look at today. We're going to spend, we've got three chapters of the book of Judges we're going to look through. So we're not going to read all of it. That's a lot of information to take on. We're going to read some and then I'm going to pray see some so we can fast forward. And we're not going to spend too much time on the big, the big battle itself because I think we can get way, way laid 
from the point of this morning, when we're looking at it from the point of view of Hebrews 11, we're looking at the man as a man of faith. Why and when was he a man of faith? And what that really means to us today. So we can look at the man himself as he went from fearing man through testing God to trusting God. Then unfortunately he fell again at the end, which we will look at as well. But there are lessons throughout this man's life. Lessons for us today. There's lessons everywhere. So, we've got lots to get through, but it's also important that we do. So, if you would turn with me to Judges chapter 6. Let me just set the scene while we're doing so. Why is it called the book of Judges? God's people, as we've been learning, have been rescued from slavery, hundreds of years of slavery in the land of Egypt. Through great miraculous moments and events, they're rescued, brought into the desert, they wander around for 40 years, they finally enter the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. And we heard about that last week through David, about Rahab the prostitute in the city of Jericho, as God's people brought Jericho down to the ground. Subsequently, there were a bunch of judges who led Israel. There's 12 judges between Joshua leading the people of Israel into the promised land and Samuel the prophet, who God used to bring in the first couple of kings to his nation. These 12 leaders, most of them were flawed, weak, actually pretty much contributed to Israel's spiritual downfall, unfortunately. How the people at the top make such a difference to everything else. Be it a church, an organisation, a cell group, it takes on the DNA of the leader, doesn't it? And you see these flawed judges and what actually happened to the nation as a result as well. It's very sad. But you ladies will be delighted that one exception to the judges that wasn't flawed and weak was a woman called Deborah. She's a bit of a do-do-dudette, in Steve language. She was amazing. So what's the state of the nation like as a result of this? This is kind of a couple of hundred years couple of centuries or so after they've entered the promised land. And in chapter 6, we're going to read the first six verses first of all. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Here we go. And so for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites and Malachites and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Finally. Finally. Last resort, isn't it? See, Israel did evil and God gave them over to Midian for seven years for discipline. The Midianites are just basically a nation from the south. They tamed camels for their use in warfare. Hugely fierce, bloodthirsty, they're nomadic. They had a real hatred for Israel. And they indulged in some pretty vile sexual as well as non-sexual religious practices. They're also known for like warding children up in walls of buildings as they were building them as a sacrifice. I mean, it's just sick, sick, sick. They're a sick nation. And God used them to oppress Israel for Israel's own well-being, for their discipline, so that they turn back to him. God even sends a prophet to warn Israel, in the next few verses, to warn Israel of their infidelity. Did they do anything about it? No, of course they didn't. So then we get to meet Gideon. Here we go. So verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah, 
that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Gideon replied, if now I have found favour in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Talk about grace on God's part. I'll wait for you. It's amazing, isn't it? Amazing. So what happens is Gideon goes and gathers an offering to offer to the Lord and the Lord burns it, burns it up there and then. It's a great miraculous sign. And finally, Gideon accepts it might actually be God he's talking to. And he trusts him. And he worships. He ends up worshipping, sacrificing and worshipping. He agrees it's God. So there's Gideon. How do we first find him? Firstly, we find him fearing man. How does he view himself, first of all, before we look at his conduct? Verse 15 says, But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? Why do you want me to do this? He says, My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. This is how he views himself. Manasseh is one of the tribes of Israel. So you've got the great nation divided into 12 family tribes, if you like. Within those tribes, you have various clans, Within those clans, you have a bunch of families. And he's saying, even my tribe is the least in Israel. And out of that tribe, my clan, I'm the weakest in my family in that clan. He belittles himself. His, his self-esteem is in the pit, literally. It's not just down in the wine press. His self-esteem's down there as well. That's how he views himself. So how does he work? There he is. We find him in verse 11, beating wheat in a wine press. Well, to explain what happened in those days, they used to thresh wheat to get rid of the chaff, the dust, so the wheat is all cleaned up. And they had to do it on a big open threshing floor that the wind could pass through. So as they're beating the wheat, the chaff, the dust flows up and the wind takes it away. Simple as that. A wine press is a square or circular hole dug down into the rock where they crush the grapes. Because he's fearing the Midianites and doesn't want them to nick his crop, he's down in the wine press threshing the wheat where no wind is going to carry away any dust, is it? It's just a hugely inefficient task he's doing. It's not really going to do the job at all. But he's doing it out of fear of man. He's fearing man and hiding in the wine press. So then how does he relate? This is the guy who belittles himself, fearing man as well. That's fearing the Midianites. That's understandable. I guess I probably would do the same as well, to be honest. I wouldn't want everything taken away. I try and hide a little bit from them. So then how does he relate to the people around him? How about the Israelites themselves? Verse 25. That same night the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. An altar to Baal and an Asherah pole are just pagan practices that the Israelites had adopted. Hugely despicable to God. God tells him to tear these down. He says, then build a proper kind of altar, verse 26, 
build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height, using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down off of the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. Here we go. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. So he's fearing the locals and his family and the men of the town, let alone these oppressive Midianites as well. <coughs> Admittedly, the Canaanite religion in those days that the Israelites had adopted, these Asherah poles, these Baal altars, Canaanite religion was very political. So an attack on a Canaanite god was tantamount to an attack on local government as well. This is the reason he had all this burning around his head. So he sneak. he does it. All right, it's God speaking. He must be on my side, but I'll do it half-heartedly and I'll do it at night when they're not looking. Hopefully they won't know it's me. So he's fearing man all round, isn't he? He's fearing man before he fears God. Holy topsy-turvy, isn't it? Why did God tell him to tear down the Baal and Asherah poles before he frees Israel from the Midianites? Tell me. Why? It's worship. Worshipping God, was that their number one priority? should always be above everything else. God wanted to ensure that the order of events here are in the right order, that honour him. Our worship has to be a number one priority in our life before anything else falls into place around it. We can do church, we can do mission, we can do good things and social work, but when there's no worship in that, ultimately, what's the point? yes, they, make, they, they do good, they help people, but if they're not fueled by worship, we're not doing it to his glory. They become acts of worship when our hearts are in the right place. We have fearing God as a number one priority before fearing man. And here is a man living in fear of man. Do you sometimes find yourself hiding in the wine press? Sometimes there are certain people when they appear, your heart starts twitching, you start to get a bit anxious around them. They're the kind of people you wouldn't speak out about God too, whereas others you would. Are there certain people you fear? Do you live in fear, fear or defeat sometimes? It's possible we can do, can't we? Certain situations, not necessarily all the time, sometimes all the time, sometimes just on certain occasions or when certain people are around. Do you fear ill health? Do you fear death? Do you fear lack of money? Or do you fear God and trust him? all these things will fall into place because that's not how God wants us to live the Bible is littered with do not fears I've heard it said before there's a do not fear for every day of the year I don't think that's true I think it's a bit of a cheesy cliche but ultimately there is lots of them in there and he only needs to say it once anyway do not fear do not fear God meets us in the wine press he met Gideon he didn't wait for Gideon to climb out first he went in his grace I met Gideon in the wine press and he turned, all, he turned things around and he can turn things around for us. He just asks us that we trust him. He is good and he does good, so be encouraged. We also have a choice as well. As much as we can learn from Gideon, where he's at and what we can learn from that, we need to look at the people around him as well. They were God's people living exactly like everybody else. And we have a choice as well, don't we? We're God's people. We still have a choice whether we live like the world we live with God, God as our number one priority. I've heard, I've heard a quote from John Wimber. The late John Wimber is a great preacher and prophetic man from, from uh, kind of a few decades ago, effectively. He's passed on now, he's in glory. But he said this, he said, I never met a Christian until I was 25. Or at least if I did, 
he was almost certainly undercover. Quite sobering, but it's true. We've got to be careful, haven't we? We've got to be careful not to get sucked into the way of the world. We can enjoy things in the world. As long as our worship is our number one priority, everything else falls into place around that. So there's Gideon, fearing man. So then what happens? Just to pray, see, his life gets threatened by the locals, by God's people. They want to kill him because he's torn down their pagan sacrificial altars. <coughs> they get the right up. His dad, fortunately, steps in and defends him with just some common sense and some wisdom. Steps in and helps him out, and they relent. They actually agree, actually, he's done the right thing. Took him a while, though. Then things really hot up. The Midianites start gathering other nations with them, and amassing a massive army to sort out the Israelites. So Gideon summons the men to arms. Here we go. He's got it now, hasn't he? Has he? Not yet. He starts testing God now. This is where things actually... I I mean, remember reading this in Sunday school. It's just, he tested God. Now we'll look at it again. This is ridiculous. Verse 36 of chapter 6. Gideon tests God. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there's dew only on the fleece, and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. See, God's grace. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a whole bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, see one test isn't enough for him, he has to do it again. Do not be angry with me, let me just make one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry, all the ground was covered with dew. Simple test. Two little miracles. This was in direct violation of the law that God had handed down through Moses. We have it in Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. Gideon was fully aware of this. God says, do not test the Lord your God. Full stop. Just don't do it. What's he doing? He's testing God. Gideon knew better than this. Therefore, not only was he being unwise, he was actually being sinful. Yet God honours it in his grace. Isn't that amazing? But the thing that gets me is how he even starts suggesting this test to God. That verse 36... Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised. He's talking to God, who made the universe. You promised that I'm going to save Israel, or you're going to save Israel by my hand. If, where's that if come from? He's talking to the God of the universe. This is ridiculous. But unfortunately, there are times when we are liable to do this. Jenny and I, back in the mid-90s, we weren't tithing, which is giving the first fruits of our our income back to God, back to the work of God through the church, for his kingdom, first 10% or more if you can, even better. We weren't doing that. We were just giving a little bit of what we had left at the end of the month, five here, ten are there, chucking it in the basket. We knew what the Bible said. Malachi chapter 4 is quite obvious. God even says, dare me, double dare me. That's my words, but... It's kind of what he says, isn't it? He said, just trust me. I'm just asking you to worship as number one priority in your life. Prove it with your money. Worship me with your money first before you worship anything else with it. We knew that. Did we do it? 
No, we waited to see what we had left and we only got £11 spare this month. That'll go all. We'll put the whole £11 in, see? Look at us being great worshippers with our money. And then one week, God kind of hit us with a big thunderbolt, didn't he? It had been cropping up on Premier. I think I read it during my quiet time that week. And then I was on the Amulet station back in London watching a bit of God TV, of all things, on Sky. And there was a guy talking about tithing and how tithing is all about worship. At the same time, Jenny was at home watching the same programme on God TV. We came home, it's like, I think God's saying something. (laughs) Numbers-wise, things didn't add up. We just couldn't do it. But God was telling us to. We knew, we knew for years he'd been telling us to anyway. But all of a sudden this week he kept sending us, sending us these signs. I don't know if you've seen The Man with Two Brains, the Steve Martin film. There's a moment when his wife's died and he's, he wants to remarry this other woman. And he, it's, it's dodgy theology, but he's asking the picture of his dead wife if it's okay if he marries this other woman. If you've got any problem with that, let me know. Okay, it's comedy. Right? He asks his picture, please tell me if I shouldn't marry Dolores. And all of a sudden, the wind comes through the, through the room and the whole room starts shaking. And he's been, Ooh! shouting out. And the light bulbs blow up and the, and the lights go off and they come on again. There's a big crack in the wall. Everything blows up. And, oh! and then everything settles down. He goes, any kind of sign, I'll be on the lookout for it. He didn't want to hear. He didn't want to hear. Jenny and I finally realised God was speaking and we couldn't procrastinate any longer. Numbers-wise, it did not add up. We didn't have that amount of spare cash. But we worshipped with our money. We bit the bullet. We took that step. We gave that tithe at the beginning of every month. First thing, as soon as we're paid, it goes straight out on a direct debit now. It's gone. Strangely enough, we still had enough to live on for the rest of the month. I don't know how the numbers added up to us at the time, the income we had at the time. God helped us out. I've no idea how it worked. But he honoured it. Sometimes we do need to take our time over decisions. Of course we do. I'm not saying don't rush things. What I am saying is when you know God has spoken on something, don't test him, don't procrastinate. So despite Gideon's lack of faith, God still shows him grace. What a gracious God that he still... He could have said, no, don't test me, not happening. I'll go and choose someone else. He actually went through with those tests. Amazing. So then what happens? This is the big battle coming up next. We're going to skip through it, to be honest, because it, it di- diverts us otherwise. But there's the famous auditions. <coughs> Gideon has gathered these men to fight off these Midianites. He's got 32,000 men. Not bad. There's 120,000 Midianites. 32,000 men. Not brilliant, but could be worse, couldn't it? God says you've got too many. He says, I want to whittle you down so that you don't boast in yourselves. You boast in me. We're going to do this in a way that it can only be me and not your strength. So he says, ask all those who are fearful to go home. So he's got 32,000. Anybody here a bit fearful? You few can go home. Out of the 32,000, 22,000 go home. 10,000 left. Okay, 10,000 now facing up to 120,000. God says, too many. I want to prove it's me, not you. He says, get them to go down to the river and drink. And depending on how they drink, some get on their knees and lap it like dogs, some use their hands and cup it. Depending on how they drink, divide them into two, and one bunch you're going to send home, the others you're going to have for the battle. 10,000, 9,700 are sent home. He's got 300 men left. 300 men facing off against 120,000 Midianites. He is now outnumbered by 400 to 1. 
It's weird numbers, you can't get a head around it. Look at it like this. All of us, we're going to battle, okay? I've done, the, I've done my maths, right? All of us, right? Get your, get your weapons ready, because we're going to fight the entire police force of Kent. And Surrey. And Sussex. And Wiltshire. And Essex. And Suffolk. And Norfolk. We're going to face all of those police officers of those seven counties. What do you reckon? <laughs> this is what was happening here. 300 men facing off against 120,000 Midianite swordsmen. God, to allay Gideon's fears, sends him in to sneak around their camp at night and says, just go and have a little listen. And he hears a couple of Midianites relaying a story, but one of them's had a dream where basically they're going to be utterly trashed by God's people. Gideon hears that, rises in faith. God has definitely spoken. And so they surround the camp at night with trumpets in one hand and they've got flaming torches with jars on top. And they sound their trumpets and they smash the jars and the lights, the lights of their torches flare up and the Midianites see this, what's happening. It's only 300, but to them, all of a sudden this happens. There's this great shout for the Lord and for Gideon and they panic. They start running into each other on their own swords, start killing each other, they start fleeing. It's a massive battle, it's amazing. The enemy gets pursued, gets rounded up. There's a big clean-up operation. Uh, Gideon ends up gathering more forces again, probably regathering the guys he's already sent home, to be honest. But he all starts off with 300 people. It happens. It works. As God said, because God's in it. You see, trusting God unlocks freedom, doesn't it? When worship is restored, when we hear from God and we act upon that, freedom comes. It's as simple as that. Worship, through worship you hear from him. As you hear from him, you step out in faith and act. Unlocks freedom. Freedom comes. So there's Gideon trusting God. Finally. Briefly. Unfortunately. For a while he's got it. For a while he's got it. Chapter 8, verse 22. Let's look at how Gideon ends his life before we understand what this all means to us. Verse 22, chapter 8. The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son and your grandson, because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. Well, for starters, they've got it wrong still, haven't they? Because they're saying, because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. God's already said, I want you to whittle you your 32,000 down to 300 to prove it's not you, it's me. The Israelites think it's Gideon still. But Gideon's right here. He says, verse 23, But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So Gideon had learned that to trust God must always be our first and our only option. Always, 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 always. He is our deliverer, our rescuer, our victor, and our saviour. And as we then find out in verse 28, it says that they then had 40 years rest in the days of Gideon. <coughs> Finally, here was a man who was trusting God, and he acted appropriately. Unfortunately, his life then ended in compromise and a moral lapse. He asked for wealth, accumulated a great load of wealth. He even led Israel into improper worship practices. They're not focusing on the wrong thing. Something he created, they turned it into an idol, basically. It gets worse than that. He had a child with a mistress. 
a son called Abimelech. This is the son who tore apart Gideon's family, literally. Killed loads. And he caused tragedy for the nation. As you continue to read through the next few chapters, Abimelech was a terrible, terrible guy. Do you know what his name means? Abimelech means my father the king. What has Gideon done there? He said, I won't rule over you. God will rule over you. As a son with a mistress, by his son's name, he calls himself a king anyway. Do you see the change of heart there? So sad. And then, verse 33 of chapter 8, says, No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. You see how the leader makes such a difference to the nation, doesn't it? But we can still learn from this. We can all have spiritual highs, spiritual breakthroughs in our lives. We can have great miraculous moments, great miraculous events or healings or whatever in our lives. But we can still fail to sustain a life that honours God as a result. Some people have a big, big, big conversion experience and then they just fade away, don't they? I know some, I can think of some now. Don't rely on the miraculous to sustain your faith. When God first appeared to Gideon, Gideon says, everybody's asking, where were these miracles from 200, 250 years ago? With the ten plagues in Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea and then the parting of the Jordan when we came into the Promised Land. We haven't seen those for 200 years. Where are they? So you're going to have to prove yourself, God. He's looking for, he's looking for the miraculous, not looking for God himself. And even today, we can still get so swept up in looking for signs and wonders, can't we? That we forget to focus on what's important. How about God? The God who grants those signs and wonders. Yes, signs and wonders are important because they validate the gospel. We should ask God for them. But they shouldn't be what we're looking for, what we need to sustain our faith. See, oh, my faith rises because God keeps doing miraculous things. As soon as they go away, does your faith drop? That brings in your, your faith into question, I suggest. Don't look for the miraculous to sustain your faith. This is a daily walk with God, whatever you're going through. Sometimes God steps back, not because he doesn't care, but because it's for our own good, our own growth, our own maturity. Don't rely on events, the miraculous, or others' faith for your faith. It's about a daily walk with God. But to encourage you, there is a difference between doubt and unbelief. Sometimes we beat ourselves up for doubting God, don't we? I mean, Gideon did doubt God, but God showed him grace in that. Sometimes we beat ourselves up because even now, now now and again, it's not a problem because sometimes even I doubt, do I really, do I really believe what I believe? I mean really. Do I really believe that God made the world? Do I really believe he's active now? Do I really believe Jesus was more than just a man in history? I have those less and less because over the years I've been able to deal with those doubts. Doubting isn't an issue because it means you're working things out. Okay? But there's a difference between doubt and unbelief. See, doubt is questioning, is asking, it's wanting to believe, you're just finding it difficult. Unbelief is not wanting to believe. Unbelief is being hard of heart. It's a decision not to. I don't believe that. You're not even open to the fact that it might be true. Gideon wanted to believe. He was doubting. He wasn't, he wasn't acting in disbelief. He wanted to, but it was finding it hard to believe. Unbelief, God will judge. Full stop. He will. But the former, that doubt, 
he pours grace over. And he asks simply that we trust him. He's a good, caring father. About the son, what is Christ's response to those who doubt? One of his best friends was a pessimist and a worry walk. A half, kind of a glass half full guy. When Jesus suggested he and the disciples move closer to Jerusalem, instead of going, yes, we're going to go with you to see more great healing miracles. We're going to go with you to spread the word of who you are and declare and preach and see amazing things happening. No, he goes, yes, we'll go with you so we can all die with you. A bit negative. He's absent when the disciples are mourning Christ's death. He's not there at all for a week or so. When he's told of the news of Jesus' rising from the dead, he demands physical evidence. This is Thomas. Doubting Thomas is where we get the phrase from. What does Jesus do? Does he berate him? Does he tell him off? Does he roll his eyes at him? Oh, Thomas, how many more times? Come on, mate. No, he pours grace on him. He says, put your finger in my wounds. Feel free in my side. Feel free. It doesn't actually say that Thomas does. It just simply says that Thomas declares, my Lord and my God. He doesn't even need to touch him. As soon as Christ pours his grace on his doubts and says, feel free to question and find out for yourself, he gets it, my Lord and my God. And his life is radically changed as a result. Historical tradition says that Thomas went off to India, had a great ministry in India, and he was actually martyred for the faith by being run through his side with a spear. He ended up with a very similar wound to his Jesus. A radically changed man, because Jesus poured grace on his doubts. And Jesus does the same for us. He doesn't roll his eyes at you when you doubt when you want to believe but you find it hard. He just pours his grace on that. But the truth is this. You can be as confident as Christ is supreme. It's as simple as that, isn't it? We make it complicated. We come up with reasons why that might be difficult. You can be as confident as Christ is supreme. How supreme is Christ? Ultimately. So you can be ultimately confident. Literally. Literally. I sense some people here know what God wants from you, but you're reluctant to step out. Sometimes the difficulty is hearing from God. I understand that. That's a process. But when you've heard from God, sometimes we can still be reluctant to step out. Gideon still had to take that step. So Gideon had, uh, God had spoken, and Gideon was, was faced with 120,000 Midianites with just 300 guys around him. Us facing off against seven counties worth of police officers. But Gideon still had to take that step of faith. God didn't do it for him. There came a point when he's outnumbered 400 to 1, Gideon still has to open his mouth and say to his men what they're going to do and then he has to do it. There came a point he had to take that step. He took that step of faith, trusting God. But quite often we do hear clearly from God. We just pretend we don't, like me and Jenny with tithing. About what we do with our money, the Bible is quite clear on baptism. The Bible is perfectly clear on that we should be sharing the gospel openly. We should be caring for the poor, caring for the needy. We should be maturing in the word. We should be committed to the body of Christ, to God's people. The Bible is quite clear on all those things. If you're not doing any of those things, God has spoken quite clearly and you need to do something about it. Do you want to be a man or a woman of faith? Do you want to be known for that? Who doesn't? You read about these people, I want to be like these people. But there comes a point where you simply have to take that step. That's all he's asking. It's about trust, isn't it? Amy's, Amy's a fantastic swimmer. 
better than I am now. She's like a machine in the water. But first of all, it started off, we always had trouble getting into nursery. She'd cry and wouldn't let go of us. People had to rip her off out of our arms. We had to run away quickly at 8.30 in the morning. And Jenny went to work. Even school for a first year or so, she didn't want to go in there. Burst into tears. Teacher had to prise her off our leg. We took her for swimming lessons. Do you want to go in there? Crying, clinging to us. You come in with me. It's like I can't. It's like a bunch of four-year-olds in a swimming pool. I'm not allowed. We couldn't pick her up and throw her in there. If we did, we'd have social workers knocking on our door. There came a point when Amy had to trust us and take that step of stepping into that pool and us going up on the balcony. Now look at her go. You should come along sometime. It's amazing. I'm well proud. Her front crawl's amazing. But it's because she took that step of faith. She trusted us that everything will be okay. And as a result, she's been stretched and she's grown. It's the same for us, be it in money matters, in family matters, be it in friends that you have difficulty with, you don't want to be around or you struggle to say no to, be it problems with housing, be it problems with your health, your illness, or your worries about the future. You can simply trust all to him. And there lies faith. Faith is trusting our Heavenly Father, trusting Dad. But like Gideon, we can still say, yeah, but it's me. Little me. What does he want to use me for? You put yourself down, can't you? Don't write yourself off. Do you feel weak and ordinary like Gideon? I know I do. This is we end. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 26. One Corinthians one twenty six it says, "Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, and the things that are not to nullify the things that are." so that no one may boast before him. Sound familiar? That's what happened with Gideon, wasn't it? It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. God's proving a point with the likes of us. that We can't boast in ourselves, we can only boast in him. But that's an encouragement, isn't it? Trust him. Because it's because of him and through Jesus who has become our wisdom. We don't have to be wise. He's our wisdom and it's all in here. Christ is our righteousness, our right standing before God. We haven't made ourselves right before God. We never can. Jesus has done that for us on the cross. Here's our holiness. Our being made perfect and set apart. We can't do that. Jesus has done that for us. And our redemption. He's our rescuer. He's our deliverer. God delivered the people of Israel from the Midianites, not Gideon. Jesus has delivered us from sin and shame and sickness and suffering, not us. It doesn't matter how you feel about yourself, just think about and know what God thinks of you. Know how big and wonderful and sovereign and great he is and trust him. Yes, sometimes you need to work things out, 
yes, sometimes we need to understand what you're saying to us. We don't always know the answer in certain situations and choices we have to make. I get that. I still have that. But sometimes when you have heard specifically, and there's lots of very clear answers in the Bible, have you acted? Because when you do, freedom comes. Simple as that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a good God who is over all things, who is unchanging. You are our God and we want to declare your greatness, Lord. But Lord, we also ask for your help. Holy Spirit, will you help us? When we know we need to act, when we know we need to speak out in front of people who make us nervous, but we know we need to say something, when we know we need to make decisions with our money or with our time, when we need your help to allay our fears for sickness or the future. Lord, we ask for your help in this, but Lord, we also know you're asking us to make that choice and to act upon it. So Lord, again, we ask for your help to do that. Whatever that means to each of us as individuals this morning, may you continue to speak to us over the next few days. Show us what it is you want us to do in certain situations if need be, or where to continue what to drop and what to pick up. But Lord, we just ask for your help. But ultimately we ask that you help us to trust you. Our faith is our trust in you. We want to prove that with our actions, with our thoughts, with our attitudes, with our worship. So Lord, just help us. Help us to do that. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. There's some questions, the cell notes are available, will be available on the website tonight. Some questions during the week to work out all about discussing the difference between <coughs> doubts and unbelief and what it means to trust God. So hopefully you'll be able to work that out in your discussions. Teas and coffees are now served. If you want to talk through anything I've said today, grab me afterwards or email, phone me, speak to one of us if you want prayer for anything. Thank you guys. <coughs>